Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A new tape of Donald Trump, and this one is in the hands of federal prosecutors. The lead starts right now. Breaking on CNN this minute, a meeting recorded. Sources telling CNN that Donald Trump not only knew he kept classified documents, he talked about them in a meeting captured on tape. What sources say he discussed and the significance of what he said. The CNN justice team has the exclusive new reporting breaking right now. Plus, this hour, the debt limit deal put to the test a growing list of House Republicans and Democrats coming out saying they plan to vote no. I'll speak with one of them coming up. And bullet through a prayer book, a survivor who hid in a closet. The stark new details coming out in the trial for the Tree of Life Synagogue mass shooting suspect. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with breaking news, a new piece of evidence that undercuts Donald Trump's defense in the classified documents investigation. Sources telling CNN federal prosecutors have obtained an audio recording of a summer 2021 Excuse me, meeting where the former president acknowledges he held on to a classified Pentagon document about a potential attack against Iran. The recording indicates that not only did Donald Trump know he had classified materials in his possession after he had left the White House, but that Trump also seemed to know there were limits on what and how he could declassify records since he was no longer president. Let's bring in CNN's Caitlin Palance and Paula Reid, who are bringing us the CNN exclusive reporting. Paula, set the scene for us. Where was this meeting? What was it about? This meeting was back in the summer of 2021 at Trump's Bedminster Golf Club. And among the people in attendance were several Trump aides and two people working on an autobiography of Mark Meadows. Now, Mark Meadows was not in attendance at this meeting. But during this time, Trump was in the habit of having his aides record any conversations with journalists, writers or people working on books. Now, sources tell us that on this tape, uh, Trump uh, it says that he has a classified Pentagon document describing a possible attack on Iran. We're also told that you can hear a paper rustling. It appears that he might be waving something around, though it's unclear if he's waving this document that he's referring to or if he's waving something else. Now, perhaps more importantly for investigators on this recording, you can hear Trump suggest that he would like to share this information with the people he's speaking with, but he acknowledges that there are limits to his power to declassify post-presidency. And as one source told me, that is a real problem. That's a real problem because it undercuts his entire argument. Caitlin, what are investigators doing now that they have this recording? Well, Jake, they're building up an investigation around it. So they have this audio recording. They were able to get it. And that is a very crucial piece of evidence that we're told is quite important. Many people have said it's very important in this investigation at this stage. Uh, We do know that they have also brought in people to talk to about this document and also about the recording itself, about this meeting at Bedminster. One of those people we saw going into the grand jury recently, uh, and we're able to confirm that that person was in the meeting at Bedminster that we're talking about here. But 
I should be very clear, we have not heard what this audio recording is. It is something that the Justice Department has. They clearly have heard, and it's quite substantial for him. What we've been able to do is reconstruct what we can understand about what Donald Trump is saying there, or at least implying when he's holding up a paper and shaking it around. And, and Paul, just spell it out as clearly as you can for us why this is such an important, uh, potentially such an important piece of evidence as seen through the lens of the classified documents investigation. Well, the former president and his attorneys have given varying, at times conflicting, explanations for why he was not uh, intentionally retaining classified materials. Uh, One of the explanations he gave at the town hall. Let's take a listen to what he said. No, no, I don't have anything. I have no classified documents. And by the way, they become automatically declassified when I took them. So there he's saying it was automatic. Uh, His allies have also suggested that he had a standing declassification order. He also told Fox News that he declassified things with his mind. But his lawyers told Congress that, in fact, he had classified materials because it's very chaotic at the end of an administration. And they didn't realize that they were there. But what he has heard saying on this recording undercuts all of those explanations. Uh, And and Caitlin... Why was Donald Trump so eager to talk about this document, this alleged document, uh, about an attack on Iran? Well, Jake, at this point in time, Donald Trump was quite angry because there were a lot of books coming out after his presidency about what happened in the last days of his presidency. And right at this July meeting, right before it, Susan Glasser at The New Yorker had published a story that said that Trump's joint chiefs of uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, had basically argued to Trump that he could not bomb Iran. He wanted to bomb Iran. And so in this circumstance, Donald Trump is trying to tell Milley or trying to tell the people that are in the room that he has a document that would undercut Milley, that that there is something that would discredit Milley's idea that he was trying to talk Trump out of bombing Iran. And so in his book, Mark Meadows, who was not in the meeting, but there were two people working on Meadows' book for him in this meeting, Meadows writes about exactly what Trump was recalling at this meeting. He says a four-page, Trump recalled a four-page report typed up by Mark Milley himself. It contained the general's own plan to attack Iran, deploying massive numbers of troops. And so the Justice Department is looking into what happened around that document itself, this document with Mark Milley, that may be the classified document that they're trying to trace, as well as what happened in this meeting as Donald Trump's acknowledging he couldn't he hadn't declassified it uh, and that he couldn't after the president. So in the world, according to Trump, this is a document from Milley that shows that Milley was the one that wanted to attack Iran, not him. And that disproves some a claim uh, that was made in the Susan Glasser article. Or at least some sort of plan from the Pentagon on this is how you would go about attack, attacking okay. Iran. Interesting. Caitlin. Uh, and Paula Reed, stick around. Um, I want to bring in CNN chief legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Laura Coates, as well as CNN senior legal analyst Emily Honok, who's a former assistant U.S. attorney. Laura, how significant could this recording be, do you think? It's extraordinarily so. And excellent reporting, ladies, on this very important matter, because the, what, it's the question that everyone wants answered. What did he know and when did he know it? The idea of did he and was he aware that he was not able to retain classified documents? Well, you can check that off the list for a variety of reasons. Did he know that there was a declassification procedure? Of course he did. Did he intend to do so and retain it, even though he was aware that the NRA, the, the, uh, NARA, excuse me, not the NRA, the NARA actually wanted it back? Absolutely. And so all you have now is the investigation trying to prove the thing that you normally eludes you, somebody's intent. You have intent, if this is reporting is true, intent that this actually did happen. 
For Jack Smith and his team, you have an otherwise clear-cut case, documents in someone's possession, ought to be returned. Was there intent? This suggests that there was. It's a very streamlined prosecutorial proof model. And Ellie, sources uh, say that prosecutors have asked witnesses about this recording and asked them about this this document on Iran uh, in front of the grand jury. How does this piece of evidence fit into whatever larger case is being built here? Well, Jake, this is a very big deal for prosecutors and I think a very big problem for Donald Trump and his team for a couple reasons. First of all, prosecutors love tapes because if you have a subject on tape, that's his own words, that's his own voice. The defense can't say, well, some witness is sort of fudging the truth. It also establishes some basic things the prosecutors need to establish. One, knowledge. Trump knew he had these documents. Two, intent. He was going to use them or potentially refer to them as it suited his strategic needs. That goes to his intent. And third, this whole claim that he declassified, well, here he is in 2021 after he's left office saying, these are still classified, so I can't show you. So it shows not only that he didn't declassify, but that he's been lying about it in public. So this is crucial evidence for prosecutors. And and Paula, what's more important here, the fact that Trump retained this classified material, we know in this instance, it's this document about Iran, or the tape in which it seems to establish that he had the document and he knew he couldn't share it. Look, it's all problematic. I mean, the fact that he's admitting that he has this classified document, he's retained it, he's discussing it in a public setting. But the fact that he admits that there are limitations to his ability to classify post-presidency, I mean, I was expecting some pretty serious court bites, some unprecedented constitutional questions. I'm sure you guys were looking forward to that, too, about his powers, post-presidency, things we've never really contemplated before. This recording undercuts all of that, and he also admits that he knows he has this document which gives him no room to argue that, like President Biden or former Vice President Mike Pence, he had no idea and things just got packed up inadvertently. It's a huge problem. By the way, this is the first time, thanks to your reporting, that we know at least some part of the substance of these documents. Up till now, we've seen the photographs of the cover sheets. There's been a lot made about the fact, oh, this is just a cover sheet that was out there. It was actually anything inside there. Now we know the substance, at least in part of one document, and the severity of it. No wonder why there is conversation surrounding the unlawful disclosure of very secretive information, the potential diplomatic Um, storm that could actually result from all of this. And the idea that he was aware of it, that he knew the consequences of it and was offering to look at it nonetheless and to undercut somebody of a high ranking authority in our own government. Shocking. So the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, General Mark Milley, is still the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Do we know if prosecutors have asked him about this? Yeah, our reporting team uh, with Caitlin Collins as well, we were able to confirm that General Milley has been questioned by investigators. And we also know that the prosecutors on this special counsel investigation, they also have been asking questions about Donald Trump's anger around Mark Milley. And also if there are other circumstances where he may have wanted to show documents like this or had documents. Now, we don't have the answer to why Donald Trump still had this. Uh, But whenever you look at the course of what we are revealing here and what this investigation is doing, one of the things the prosecutors really need to nail down is whether Donald Trump knew he had this classified document. And if he's talking about Milley and he's waving around something and he's referring to a document he has from Milley, that's quite important. Ellie, if you were on Trump's defense team, how might you defend this recording? So that's a tough one, Jake. I think, first of all, they're going to want to see the actual transcript and the recording itself. They may try to parse the words. There may be a creative argument that, well, 
he didn't legitimately think he was doing anything wrong because if so, why would he talk about it in front of these writers, these reporters? I said it's creative. One thing I do want to stress though, one important aspect of Paula and Caitlin and the team's reporting is that Trump's own team made these recordings at his request. There's really sort of shades of Nixon there. And New Jersey is what we call a one-party state, meaning that as long as one party to the conversation approved the recording, then those recordings are going to be legal and potentially admissible against him. And, and Laura, it, reading the tea leaves of where Jack Smith is going in his investigation, it had seemed as though he was only, possibly only going to mm-hmm. go after the obstruction of justice charges. And, but this would suggest a, a broader, theoretically, a, a broader uh, case. Intent is really the final puzzle for peace for any prosecutor. It's the hardest thing to prove because you can't get into the mind of the person you're targeting. But it also makes it a broader case, you're right, away from obstruction and now about the disclosure of information, also about other more expansive. Is this document that was waved around purportedly, do they actually now have it? Or is it a part of another trove that is yet to be uncovered? It is expanding. All right. Thanks, one and all. Great reporting. Really appreciate it. Coming up. A key House vote, it's happening this hour. It will help determine the fate of the debt limit compromise deal. Plus, what CNN is learning today about former Vice President Mike Pence and exactly when he plans to get into the 2024 presidential race and what the Chinese government has to say about that aggressive maneuver by one of its own fighter jets flying awfully close to a U.S. spy plane. Stay with us. Topping our 2024 lead, sources tell CNN that former Vice President Mike Pence is set officially to join the Republican presidential race next week with an announcement video and a kickoff speech in Iowa. The widely expected campaign launch will come just hours before the former vice president will join CNN's Dana Bash for a town hall in the Hawkeye state. CNN's Jeff Zeleny is in Iowa, where the former VP will make his announcement one week from today. Jeff, Pence's relationship with his former boss, Donald Trump, and the MAGA voter base soured after he refused to overturn the election for him on January 6th and complied instead with what he was supposed to do according to the will of the people and the U.S. Constitution. How is he planning to overcome that? Well, Jake, uh, that is the central question really facing the, uh, the candidacy of Mike Pence. But he has long said that history, he believes, will hold Donald Trump accountable. Uh, It's an open question, though, if Republican voters will hold Donald Trump accountable for his role in election denialism and trying to uh, incite violence on the Capitol on January 6th that, of course, Mike Pence and his family were deeply involved in. But, of course, he is going after the Republican voters who are simply ready to turn the page. I am at a rally here that it's about to begin for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. These Republicans also are ready to turn the page. So there certainly is a growing field of Republican candidates here. Mike Pence will officially become one of those next week, as will new uh, the former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. So the wide of the never Trump lane is growing. But uh, the question is, does that actually help President Trump? But as for the Pence uh, strategy, I was with him in New Hampshire a couple weeks ago, and his advisors tell me he plans to talk about a deeply conservative uh, record, his fiscal conservative record, trying to draw a distinction between just his vice presidency, but also his time as governor of Indiana and uh, his service in the Congress as an Indiana congressman as well. But of course, it's uh, a tough road for him. There is no doubt about it because there are so many Trump loyalists inside this party. But he believes that by uh, focusing on his conservative record, he can make uh, the party, as he will say, one of fiscal sanity. So next week, uh, he will formally jump into this race. Jake, we're almost at a dozen candidates as we enter the summer. 
All right, Jeff Zeleny in Pella, Iowa. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. That Republican presidential town hall with Mike Pence is next Wednesday night at 9 o'clock Eastern with Dana Bash. Before that one, I will moderate a different town hall, this one with former governor and ambassador Nikki Haley. Uh, That will be this coming Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN, also live from Iowa. Turning to our money lead drama unfolding on the floor of the House of Representatives right this moment as a vote is expected tonight on the debt ceiling compromise bill. CNN's Manu Raju joins us now live from Capitol Hill. Manu, tell us what's going on. That's right. This is the rule that must be approved by the House before the full House can consider the bill to suspend the debt limit until January 2025. Typically, these rules, which essentially sets the parameters for the floor debate, typically they're approved along straight party lines. No members from the majority party vote against it. No members of the minority party vote for it. This is different. I mean, amid concerns from the far right of the House Republican Conference, Speaker McCarthy is struggling to get the votes on the just Republican votes alone in order to get this rule approved. If all members are voting, he needs 218 votes to get this approved. Right now, he has 187 votes. There are 29 Republican votes voting against it. He can only afford to lose no more than four Republican votes in order for any bill to be approved along straight party lines. At the moment, Democrats themselves are voting against it. That's what the direction from the Democratic leadership was to the rank and file to vote against it. But there are 42 Democrats who have not yet voted. They're holding out their votes, and they're expected ultimately to give the Speaker the votes in order to get this rule approved. But it's very clear the Democrats are trying to make the Speaker sweat, try to extract potentially some concessions. We'll see if any deals are cut on the House floor. But at the moment right now, the, the leadership does not, on the Republican side, does not have the votes to get this rule approved. Now, our our colleagues within the chamber say the speaker is in the chamber. He looks pretty relaxed. He does expect this rule ultimately to get approved. But at the moment right now, it's going very slowly. 188 votes in the affirmative. That's not enough. 188 Republican votes, 29 Republican votes against it and counting. Five Republicans have not voted yet. We'll see what ultimately happens here, Jake. But if and when this rule is approved, that will be the first step before the full House votes tonight and to suspend the debt limit, pass this bill that it was negotiated with the White House, send it over to the Senate after weeks and weeks of negotiation, months of standoff between the two sides. But at the moment, drama playing on the floor as the Speaker trying to get this first procedural vote approved, and right now it doesn't have the votes. And Manu, we're hearing uh, that some uh, members of the Conservative House Freedom Caucus are threatening uh, to use the what's called a motion to vacate. Uh, basically, it just it allows... Uh, just one member to to raise this as a a move to oust McCarthy as speaker. They're threatening to use this uh, next week. Is, Is that real? That is really an uncertain question, Jake, because as you mentioned, just one member can essentially call for this vote and they can't stop this vote from happening. And if the speaker is unable to limit defections to more than no more than four, if there are four or more who want him out as speaker, he's out as speaker, assuming all Democrats vote to remove him as well. The conservatives have not made a final decision about whether to go that route, but some of them are very angry about whether about the deal that was cut. They believe it didn't go far enough and are weighing whether or not to go that far. That is a discussion for another day. The question is whether the temperature will cool down a bit if this bill passes. And the big question tonight is how many Republicans ultimately vote for the underlying bill to raise the debt ceiling. The Speaker and his team want to have a majority of House Republicans to get behind it. The Speaker today told me he is confident 
he will get a majority of Republicans voting for it. Some of the folks on the far right, like Congressman Matt Gates, have warned that if it's under a majority of House Republicans, that's what could trigger the efforts to try to oust him from the speakership. So that vote, that threshold is key. And the question will be if this will, after this passes, if the the, the calculation changes on the far right of the conference, but at the moment right now, the speaker doesn't seem to concern about it. I asked him if this is going to, if this his speaker, this makes his speaker any less secure, and he said, not at all. Yeah, they're uh, they're four votes away now from that rule passing. Two hundred fourteen. They just need four. Oh uh, yeah, Jake. Yeah. Uh, uh, now it's three. Two hundred and fifteen. Yeah, so as you can see, Jake, yeah, Democrats yeah. are now giving the votes to get this passed. This is what we expected. They were going to hold out until the very end here. And now Democrats breaking ranks. Unusual. These rules typically are approved along straight party lines. But now 26 Democrats and counting. 27 now getting to that magic number. There it is. Pass the first procedural. They just, there it is, 218. They just hit the yeah. magic number. for That's the first procedural vote. It looks like. Uh, Speaker McCarthy uh, is going to get that rule approved, and then we'll proceed uh, later tonight to a vote on the actual uh, legislation. Manu Raju uh, bringing us in real time the vote counting, as, a, as a, the vote casting, rather, on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. As the House passes uh, this rule and then the debt ceiling bill, potentially, it will then, of course, head to the U.S. Senate. It faces challenges there as well. Uh, one senator strongly against one of the amendments added to the legislation is going to join me next. Stay with us. A failed North Korean satellite launch tops the world lead today. Today, North Korea's state-run news agency quickly admitted that a rocket carrying a satellite intended for outer space failed and crashed into the Yellow Sea. The North Korea's space agency says it will investigate urgently and plans to relaunch as soon as possible. As South Korean officials attempt to clean up yet another accidental air raid siren alert canceled 20 minutes after it was issued early this morning because of that North Korean launch. Later, the mayor of Seoul, South Korea, apologized for, quote, causing confusion. Now to China, where top government officials insist that the United States is the one provoking them after a Chinese fighter pilot flew dangerously close to a U.S. spy plane in international airspace over the South China Sea late last week. U.S. military officials call this a, quote, unnecessarily aggressive maneuver as the relationship between the Chinese and U.S. governments grow icier by the day. China's defense minister snubbed U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin's invitation to meet this week. And today, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken insisted that that close call in the air underscores the need for, quote, regular open lines of communication, unquote. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, a massive explosion near the intersection of the Russian, Belarusian, and Ukrainian borders today. Ukrainian officials say Russia is responsible, and they argue the move shows that the Kremlin is nervous that Ukraine would potentially use that crucial border crossing for its intended and pending counteroffensive. While in Russia's border town of Belgorod, a, quote, massive strike injured four people, according to Russian officials there. CNN's Fred, Fred Plykin is in Kiev as Russian officials are starting to sleep with one eye open. While the Ukrainians continue to deny being directly involved in the drone attack on Moscow, a senior advisor to Ukraine's presidency is warning the Russians the war is coming to them. All this will increase in scale. There will be an increase in the number of manifestations of the war on the territory of the Russian Federation. And Russia is not only feeling the heat around Moscow, the Ukrainians appear to be ramping up the pressure in the vast border regions between the two countries. 
Local authorities in the Belgorod area say heavy shelling damaged residential and official buildings there, wounding several people. It was very scary. Several bursts at once. This has not happened before. Further south in the Krasnodar region, the Russians say two oil refineries were targeted by drones. The surveillance camera video seeming to show an explosion followed by a large fire at one of the facilities. And to the north, authorities in the Bryansk area say they repelled a massive drone attack, while the Ukrainians believe the Russians are so nervous they blew up a road in the border region nearby to try and stop any possible Ukrainian advances. The U.S. says it doesn't condone attacks on Russian territory. We have maintained our concerns about attacks on Russian soil, but, but we have been nothing but, uh, but generous uh, and fully committed to making sure that Ukraine can defend itself. But some of the U.S.'s allies are less concerned. Ukraine does have the legitimate right to defend itself, but it does also have the right to project force uh, beyond its borders to undermine Russia's ability to, uh, to project force into Ukraine itself. Those remarks caused major outrage on Kremlin-controlled TV as Russia's security forces seem unable to prevent cross-border raids. So as you can see there, Jake, a bit of uneasiness about uh, among the Russian propaganda. At the same time, there's a senior Ukrainian official uh, who's telling us that the strikes that you're seeing right now, whether it's uh, fuel refineries on Russian territory or whether or not it's areas that are occupied by Russia in Ukraine, all of those are precursors to that large-scale counteroffensive by the Ukrainians, which they, of course, have been preparing for a very long time and which they now say is imminent, Jake. All right, Fred Plykin in Kiev, Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Virginia Democratic Senator Tim Kaine joins us now. Um, Senator, I, I know you want to talk about the debt ceiling bill, and I'll get to that in one second, but you're on the Foreign Relations Committee, so I do want to get your take on this new pattern of attacks on Russian soil. Uh, the White House has made it clear that it does not support any attacks by Ukraine or anyone else on Russia. But is that realistic, considering what Russia has been doing to the people of Ukraine, innocent civilians targeted for more than a year. Well, um, Jake, that is the U.S. position, and it ought to be the U.S. position, but Ukraine is defending itself. Uh, Russia has conducted an illegal invasion. Russia is engaged in massive human rights abuses. We just came from a Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing about the human rights abuses being uh, committed by Russia. And so, you know, this raises concerns about escalation, but... Ukraine is trying to defend itself, and I'm not going to stand here and, and be the judge of people trying to protect their homeland from an illegal invasion. Let's turn back to the, the major news on Capitol Hill right now, the debt ceiling. You clearly have some major concerns with a provision added to this bill uh, to greenlight the controversial Mountain Valley pipeline from West Virginia to Virginia. It's championed by a Democratic senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, who's running for re-election. Uh, you plan to file a, an amendment to get rid of it. Are, are you going to vote no on the entire bill if your amendment fails? Jake, that's moving a couple of steps down the board, and I haven't got there yet. I'm just insisting on an amendment. You correctly point out we're trying to do a debt ceiling deal. The White House, in their negotiation, added a completely unrelated provision. There is nothing about greenlighting the Mountain Valley Pipeline that has anything to do with the debt ceiling. Um, and I think it's very bad policy. I think every a project should have to go through permitting processes. And if it gets approved, then you can build it. And if it doesn't, you got to make it better till you get approved. But what Congress shouldn't do is pick one project in the country 
and give it a green light and exempt it from all permitting processes. To build a pipeline, you got to take people's land, Jake. You got to take their land. And people in Appalachia, they don't want to give up their land for this. Um, if, if there's a process that says the nation needs it, that's one thing. But Congress exempting the operators of this pipeline from the normal permitting rules, it's just not something I can support. And I've made it plain to my colleagues and to the White House for months and months and months why they would add this without talking to me about it is beyond me. Well, isn't this the Joe Manchin Re-Election Protection Act? I mean, isn't that the idea? You know, you'd have to ask them. I mean, look, they, they did work with Joe on this in the Inflation Reduction Act, and they, they promised him, hey, look, we're going to work to make it happen. They tried to add it to the defense bill. They tried to add it to, you know, a uh, uh, year-end appropriations. What about a permitting reform bill? Put it in that and do it in regular order. There is bipartisan support for permitting reform. That's where something like this should go. What you should do is make the permitting reform process better and then make Mountain Valley go through that. And they can do it. They're a big company with resources. They can do it. But to exempt it completely is, is just something. This, this project runs through two states. My colleague and friend Joe Manchin thinks this is good for West Virginia. But I think uh, forcing Virginians who don't want to give up their land to have to give up their land under eminent domain for something that will do them no good whatsoever, Congress shouldn't be forcing them to do that. So uh, President Biden has been known to watch this show. Uh, is there anything you want to tell him, given that he didn't call you to give you a heads up? You can say pre something to him right now. Pre pre President Biden should watch this show, Jake, because it's a good show. Thank you. Look, I mean, I, I, I just am, I, I, I am a loyal President Biden guy. I endorsed him in the Virginia primary. I campaigned hard for him. I'm working every way I can to cooperate with him. This is a big deal in Virginia, and, and we were sort of cut out of it. Uh, I would love to, you know, you know, hear from the White House any reason. I mean, I did get a call from John Podesta to say, hey, look, okay, I, I get you. I get you why you're upset, but I didn't get a good reason for why they would do this without us. All right. Senator uh, Tim Kaine from the great Commonwealth of Virginia, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate you it. You bet. Was President Biden ever involved in a criminal scheme with a foreign national? We're looking for evidence, or at least Republicans are on Capitol Hill. We'll tell you what they found, if anything. That uh, leader of that committee is pressuring the FBI director for an evidence to help prove his case. In our law and justice lead, a standoff over a Biden document continues to escalate in Congress. Today, FBI Director Christopher Wray spoke with GOP House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer and Iowa Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, a senior member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Those two want FBI Director Wray to hand over an internal document that they say will shed light into an allegation that then-Vice President Joe Biden was involved in a criminal scheme of some sort with a foreign national. Comer's threatening to hold FBI Director Wray, who was appointed by Trump, in contempt of Congress if the FBI continues to refuse to comply with the subpoena. CNN's Sarah Murray joins us now. And Sarah, FBI Director Ray, he made quite the offer today on the phone call. What did he say? Well, look, according to sources familiar with this call, Ray basically said he will allow James Comer to view this document that Comer has been seeking. So, you know, this is an accommodation we have seen other members of the administration make when it comes to other committees doing oversight on other things. But we're also learning that Comer basically told Ray on the call, look, this doesn't mean we're not going to proceed with contempt. I think the view of Comer is this is not the same getting to go and review the document as having that document handed over to Congress and being able to essentially to share that document with all of the members on the committee, Jake. 
So it is in this offer that Ray made, it would Comer be the only one allowed to see the document? Well, normally the way this works is that the chairman and the ranking member would get to see the document. And we do expect that Jamie Raskin is going to be able to see it. But in a sign of the sort of dysfunction of this committee, they did not do a call together with Director Ray. And here's what a spokesperson for the committee, Dem, said. Since Chairman Comer refused to allow ranking member Raskin to participate in his call with Director Ray this afternoon, the ranking member secured a separate call this afternoon so that Director Ray can brief him on the information the FBI is providing in response to the committee's subpoena. So that, I think, gives you some insight into how well things are going between Republicans and Democrats on that committee. Right. What exactly are they trying to investigate? What, what is the allegation? And would this prove it one way or the other? I mean, the allegation is that when Joe Biden was vice president, he was involved in some sort of alleged criminal scheme where a foreign national essentially tries to pay him off. There is nothing to indicate that this is a verified rumor. The White House has dismissed it and called this all, you know, a GOP charade that is designed to try to hurt Joe Biden's poll numbers. And even the FBI, you know, is they're writing to this committee trying to lay out why they're so hesitant to to hand this document over, says this is unsubstantiated information. A confidential source comes in, speaks to the FBI. They use this form to sort of memorialize that conversation. But this is information from one person. It doesn't tell you, you know, did the FBI check this out? Did somebody else contradict them? Is this a person who, you know, is a crazy person who came in from the street and decided right. they wanted to share this information from the FBI? So we really still won't have a sense, even when Congress gets to go view this information, even if they get a copy of the document, if there is any veracity to what they're talking about. Yeah, I mean, we, I remember from the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, that like any wacko can make an any allegation and call it in to who, at the FBI or whatever. The question is, what's the case file show? Right, exactly. And, you know, if Comer is able to, you know, he's going to get to see it, but if he's able to get a copy of it, the question is, so, so then where are you going to go with it? Are you going to actually try to speak to the FBI and substantiate whether it was investigated, whether they found anything? And if they say, look, we looked into this and we found nothing, are you going to share that with the American public? Right. And before I get tweets, let me say I'm talking about all the unsubstantiated, wild, anonymous allegations against Kavanaugh. Just to be clear. Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Strong evidence revealed uh, at the trial uh, for that mass shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue, a prayer book shredded by a bullet. Police body camera footage from that day. We're going to go live to the federal courthouse in Pittsburgh next. In our national lead, authorities are looking into what led a building to partially collapse in eastern Iowa. This is happening in Davenport, right across the Mississippi River from Illinois. Part of a six-story apartment building fell on Sunday. At least five people are still missing. And officials fear two of them might be trapped inside the building, which could topple further at any moment. Crews managed to rescue nine people, but the search effort may need to stop because the wreckage is just too fragile and too dangerous for crews to go into. The city's fire marshal got a bit emotional when talking about this difficult situation. Take a listen. We want to get everybody out, and we want to do it right now. Those who were able to get out are now displaced. The building's owner is facing a safety violation from the city. In our Law and Justice lead, today was the second day of testimony in the trial for the admitted gunman who killed 11 innocent people at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue back in October 2018. The shooting is the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in the history of the United States. CNN's Danny Freeman was in the courthouse today as one of the survivors of the shooting took to the witness stand to describe how she hid in a closet during the carnage. 
Tonight, we're getting a new look into the horror inside of the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. This new video from a police body camera released Wednesday shows Tree of Life rabbi Jeffrey Myers fleeing from the temple after police finally rescued him. The rabbi clutching his yarmulke and prayer shawl, which he wore through the entire attack. When prosecutors asked what he was thinking as he fled, he testified, I asked God to forgive me because I couldn't save them, the other congregants. Nothing I don't think could prepare you for an experience like this, particularly as a religious leader, to, to see your flock slaughtered. This new video, among dozens of new exhibits released by the court, one image shows a rifle magazine on the floor of a hallway. Another shows crime scene tape and blood on the ground. This image shows a Tree of Life prayer book with an apparent bullet hole in the top. Rabbi Myers testified he kept the book after the massacre, saying, It is a witness to the horror of the day. One day when I'm not there, this book tells a story that needs to be told. The accused killer, Robert Bowers, spent day two of the trial intently watching multiple witnesses for the prosecution take the stand. Bowers has pleaded not guilty to all 63 charges. Carol Black was in the synagogue that morning and recalled hiding in a closet as bullets rang out, saying she watched her friend, Melvin Wax, die in front of her. Black escaped, but her brother, Richard Godfrey, did not survive. She was the first family member of a victim to testify. Gottfried, Wax, and Daniel Stein, all members of the New Light congregation, were killed. Rich and Dan and Mel were best friends to us. They were our religious heart. Maggie Feinstein, director of 1027 Healing Partnership, has been watching the trial in court with impacted families each day. There is no doubt that some people feel relief. Some people feel dread. People feel every range of feelings. But yes, some people feel relief um, because this is really important, that, that the idea that justice could happen. And Jake, one interesting thing is that we've gone through nine witnesses now, dispatchers, survivors, and of course one of the rabbis. And lead defense attorney Judy Clark has not cross-examined any of those witnesses just yet, so we'll be keeping an eye on that to see if that changes in the coming days and weeks. Jake? All right, Danny Freeman in Pittsburgh, thank you so much. Coming up next, a CNN exclusive audio of Donald Trump exists and prosecutors have it. It seems to undermine what he has said about classified documents that he kept improperly after leaving office. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, it's getting pretty crowded out on the campaign trail as we learn yet two more Republican presidential candidates are about to throw their hats into the ring take on Donald Trump, and they both used to be Trump's besties. Plus, more than 564,000 American lives lost and countless others devastated by opioids. And now the family whose company gave America OxyContin has been granted civil immunity in exchange for $6 billion meant to address the crisis. Where will that money go? And we're leading this hour with exclusive new CNN reporting about Donald Trump and his handling of classified documents. Sources telling CNN that the special counsel, Jack Smith, has obtained an audio recording of Trump saying that he held on to a classified Pentagon document about a potential attack on Iran. The recording is from a meeting in summer 2021 and seems to indicate Trump knew he had classified materials in his possession after leaving the White House. Even more, perhaps even more damaging, Sources say the recording suggests that the former president knew that there were limits on declassifying records once he had left the Oval Office, which would seem to undercut Trump's defense in declassified documents investigation. Let's get straight to CNN's Caitlin Collins. Caitlin, what exactly is on this recording? 
It's significant, Jake, because this is something that could significantly undermine essentially everything that Trump has been saying in defense to this document's investigation. And the reason that this is the meeting that matters so much is it was actually months before that effort that was underway to get so many of those documents from Mar-a-Lago back to the National Archives. There was certainly a back and forth. But this was back in the summer of 2021. And Trump is meeting with people who are writing a bio- autobiography for Mark Meadows at his Bedminster Club in New Jersey. They are talking about a story that just came out in The New Yorker that Susan Glasser published. It was about General Mark Milley, who, as you know, is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And it was about his concerns that in those waning days of the Trump presidency, that Trump was going to potentially take would potentially take military action when it came to Iran and Milley's efforts to push back on that. And what we are told is on this tape is Trump discussing a document that is classified that he says if he could show it to the people that he's speaking to, that it would undermine what Milley's argument is, that Milley was the one pushing back um, against Trump's efforts to potentially take action, take military action in Iran. Now, we have not actually heard this recording, Jake, but we do know it is in the hands of the prosecutors who are investigating his handling of classified documents after he left office. We do know that you can hear paper rustling on this recording. We know that there are people laughing in the background. I'm told that this part only is about two minutes long that pertains to Iran. It's part of a much longer recording that prosecutors now have. The reason, though, Jake, that it's significant is that Trump seems to indicate on this tape, as he is speaking with those that he has gathered with him at his New Jersey club, that he cannot show it to them, that he has taken something that is a classified document and that he is limited in his post-presidency ability to declassify something, which, of course, would undercut the argument that he's been making all along. And, Caitlin, uh, just a few weeks ago at the town hall, you specifically asked Donald Trump about his handling of classified documents. Uh, Let's play a little of that. Do you have the Presidential Records Act? I was there and I took what I took and it gets declassified. Did you ever show those classified documents to anyone? Not really. I would have the right to. By the way, they were declassified after. Not not that I can think of. Let me just tell you, I have the absolute right to do whatever I want with them. So this tape would really undercut that defense. It would incredibly undercut that defense significantly. Not just that one, Jake. It's not just that the question of whether he showed it to people. And we should note the people that we are told that were in this room did not have security clearances, so they would not have been able to see these documents, regardless of the fact that it was not in a secure location. It's just at his, his Bedminster Club. But also his defense that, you know, he declassified everything, that he had this standing declassification order, that he could declassify things with his mind, as he's argued. It would undercut all of those defenses, Jake. And and I think what is the most telling part of this and also, you know, a really juicy detail in the story that I'm reporting with Caitlin Polentz and Paula Reed is that General Milley, who is still the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has gone and spoken with investigators about this. That is how interested they are in this. Now, we are also told that this wasn't a document that Milley produced, despite what Trump was arguing uh, or making it sound like on this recording. That's not totally clear still, but it's generated enough interest that Jack Smith's team has brought in the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to ask them about this episode. Caitlin, stick around. I want to bring in CNN's Jamie Gangal, the uh, former principal deputy assistant attorney, General Tom Dupree and the former deputy director of the FBI, uh, Andrew McCabe. Um, So, Tom, you worked at the Justice Department. How big of a deal could this recording be for the investigation? 
I think it's potentially very significant, Jake. Look, I mean, prosecutors will tell you that the most effective way to puncture a defendant's defense that he didn't have the intent to commit a crime is by using his own words against him. And to me, from my perspective, it's remarkable that at every stage of this, that special counsel seems to be finding evidence of either what Trump himself said, what his lawyers himself said. And if there should come a day when this all gets presented to a jury, I think he's amassed a pretty powerful case of evidence against the president showing that he knew these documents were classified when he took them out of the White House. And and, uh, Director McCabe, on on the recording, we're told that Trump's comments suggest he would like to share the information in the document, but he knows there are limitations on his ability to declassify the documents because he's no longer uh, president. That does seem to contradict what he has said numerous times uh, to Caitlin Collins in the town hall, to Sean Hannity. He had this Uri Geller defense where he could just do it with his mind. Um, you know, is it a smoking gun, do you think? It, it is a smoking gun. It, de- it, it directly contradicts all those things. And it establishes many things that could have been defenses. One, he actually had classified documents there. He is admitting it. He's in the past that he didn't have any. Two, he knew that what he had was classified. It establishes that knowledge, that uh, scienter, as they say in the law. Uh, it establishes that he knew he hadn't declassified those things. They remained classified, and he was limited in how he could handle them. So it's really devastating to the many defenses that Jack Smith has been collecting evidence to counteract. And this one, as you say, Tom, is the president speaking in his own words. It's, it's, it's really rough. Right. And Jamie uh, Gangel, um, I mean, Donald Trump is known for attacking anybody when they say anything he doesn't like. He did it just yesterday to, to Kaylee McEnany, his former uh, spokeswoman, because she you know, said something on Fox that, that he didn't like. This is himself. These are his own words. There's a tape. We haven't heard it yet, so let's, you know, let's wait to hear it. But he can't say he didn't say those words. I want to point out something else, and that is all the other people in the room who didn't have security clearance. This speaks to, I would say, it sounds as if he was very cavalier. We don't know that he showed the document to them, but he's handling them with people who have no security clearances. One other thing, it wasn't just at Mar-a-Lago. He brought this document apparently up to New Jersey, to Bedminster. Yeah, this whole meeting is in Bedminster. Correct. So, you know, what does this say about other meetings, about movement of documents? It it could be much more than just this one incident. Caitlin, has has Donald Trump or his team responded to their reporting from uh, you, Paul, and Caitlin? And and what could their defense potentially be here? No, we haven't gotten a comment from them. Obviously, we published the story about an hour ago. Obviously, we reached out before then trying to get in touch with them asking for you know, their version of this because they've pushed back on this repeatedly, saying that he's d- had no wrongdoing here. His, ar- his lawyers have made diff- different arguments in court than what you've seen Trump always make publicly about how he's declassified these documents. But we still, to this moment right now at 5.07 p.m., have not gotten a comment from them on this. And I think also what's important to note here is as we've tracked this investigation and we've all been reporting on it for several months now, there have been moments where we've heard from sources close to, to Trump's orbit saying they don't think this uh, this investigation really poses a threat to him. 
This piece of reporting seemed to change that. We heard from sources who said they believed it was an important piece of evidence in this investigation because it does go to that heart of his defense of whether or not he believed that he could declassify things, of whether or not, as Paula was noting earlier, it was this rushed move from the White House and aides packed up boxes and they didn't know what he had at Mar-a-Lago or at Bedminster, as Jamie notes there. On this recording, and we don't know that he was actually holding the document on Iran. That's what he was indicating to those who were listening. But you can hear a paper rustling on the recording. So he knew that he had this document, obviously a plan uh, to potentially strike Iran, as he indicated, it was, is that what it was, what it was, would be classified. He knew that he had that. And he knew, obviously, that he's no longer inside the White House. And so I think that is also a significant part of this. And I should note, Jake, one other thing. We're told that a lot of these developments have happened recently. When it comes to to General Milley speaking with investigators, I'm told that has happened recently. We don't know exactly when, but it does speak to the level of progress in this investigation and the fact that Jack Smith is very much still conducting this investigation. So if it happened recently uh, that uh, they talked to General Milley, who is a pretty busy guy, you might think that would be one of the last interviews they would do. Um, and also, we know that this tape has been presented uh, to the grand jury. What does that tell you about where Jack Smith, the special counsel, might be in his investigation? I think we're nearing the end of this. I mean, all these clues are out there. To your point, he's been moving in classic prosecutorial style, where you start at the bottom, you gradually work your way up. We've seen the people he's talking to. As your point, very senior individuals. Jack Smith has been moving with alacrity. He's been progressing this investigation, in my opinion, in a very methodical way, taking his time, working his way up to the top. And he's also aware that he's got to get this thing wrapped or at least bring an indictment if he's going to indict before the political season gets into full gear. Uh, you know, so he's looking at the clock on that front as well. Yeah. So, I mean, the Republican primaries are months away, but but all these opponents are getting in. Uh, right. I mean, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley. Uh, next week, it's going to be Chris Christie uh, and, uh, and and Mike Pence. Uh, there's also obviously Ron DeSantis. Um, how, how much does this play a role in the timeline, uh, do you think? I mean, obviously, you haven't talked to Jack Smith about this, but you can't be immune to the calendar. Not at all. So he, he's got a, one eye on the calendar with everything they do. Every subpoena they send out, his folks are calculating how much time do we have to let that come back, how much analysis will those results take. What he's most concerned about, though, is the DOJ policy that limits what you can do overtly as you get very close to the actual election. So doesn't really apply. It's, it's kind of a vaguely written document. Nobody's really 100% sure on it, but it doesn't, it wouldn't seem to limit him in any respect vis-a-vis the, the primary schedule, but it will limit him as he gets close to the general election. Now, I agree with Tom. I think he's much closer to an indictment or to making a decision on an indictment than, than the general election. So I would expect we'd see something on this in the next two months. So how is the Republican Party and how are his 2024 Republican rivals uh, reacting? How do they view this investigation? I have heard all along for months and months and months uh, from people who are expert and investigators like you, like Maggie Haberman at the Times, that this is really potentially the most serious of all of the investigations into Trump. Absolutely. Look, we're seeing more and more Republicans get into the race. So clearly in the party, there are candidates out there who think this may Uh, open a path. That said, we have seen time and again with Donald Trump that these investigations do not move his base. They do not move those hardcore supporters. So will it, is it serious from a legal point of view? It seems as if it is. Will it affect his being a front runner? 
Not so sure. Well, he's the one that said his base loves him so much he could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue Correct. and shoot somebody and they wouldn't abandon him. And he meant that as a, as a compliment. I'm not sure that it actually is one. Uh, thanks all for being here. It would not be a day that ends in Y if there was no drama when it comes to the debt compromise deal. So what's next? Then, Republican rumble. Is Ron DeSantis finally ready to fire back at Donald Trump? I mean, directly? We'll tell you what his latest jab is ahead. In our money lead, we're a little over three hours away from the scheduled House vote on the bill to avoid the catastrophic debt default. The final vote is expected in the 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern hour this evening. Right now, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and his top allies are expressing confidence that the legislation will pass. Let's bring in Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina. Congresswoman, earlier this week you tweeted, quote, I'm voting no on the debt ceiling debacle because playing the D.C. game isn't worth selling out our kids and grandkids, unquote. You, you just did vote yes on the rule, which allows this to come to the floor uh, of the House. Why did you vote yes on the rule if you oppose the legislation? Well, the rule is a procedural motion. Uh, and what we saw just now on the floor, it didn't really matter if you voted yes or no. The votes were there and there were negotiations made with Democrats for their vote for yes to get it through. They were promised earmarks that they'll now receive for their yes vote on the rules. So it didn't really matter from my perspective whether I was a yes or a no, but I'll be voting no tonight because my vote's with the American people. So included in the debt ceiling bill are several provisions that Republicans passed in the House but were not able to get through the Democratic Senate, uh, to say nothing of the White House. It includes uh, reducing spending for the IRS, rescinding COVID funding, uh, work requirements for food stamp recipients, resuming student low payments, Uh, If the debt ceiling bill does pass, those things will be passed by a Democratic-controlled Senate and signed into law by the Democratic uh, president. What do you say when people, uh, your colleagues who are voting yes, say, take the win, this is good for us? This is not a win for the American people. Republicans got nothing for this. In fact, the debt ceiling bill doesn't even have an actual limit on the debt ceiling, um, we are signing into, we'll be signing into law, making it plain that the COVID level, the highest historic level of spending we've had in this country, around $6 trillion, we're signing that into law to say that is baseline spending going forward. And the work requirements that you mentioned, come to find out, it actually expands government welfare, not shrink it. Um, the IRS uh, stuff, that's $1.4 billion cut. That's nothing. That's page 53, line 11. I've read this bill. I've read it multiple times over. It's not the spending cut bill that we were promised or that, that is being told that's the truth right now. And I'm here to set the record straight that this is not a win for the American people. It's going to add $4 trillion of debt over the next two years. Um, this is going to be an enormous problem. I think it'll make inflation worse. And long term, we're going to have a lot of problems trying to rein back this out of control spending that we are going to, that'll pass out of the House tonight. Uh, Punchbowl's Jake Sherman reported that last night behind closed doors in a meeting with Republican leadership, Congressman Ralph Norman, who's also a no on the bill, he said to the leadership, quote, y'all did the best you could and probably better than I could, unquote. Uh, Do you disagree with him? I wasn't there, so I can't verify the truthfulness of that statement. I would argue I was a reluctant yes the first time because I felt we need to have a more conservative bill come out of the House because when you are negotiating, you have to give up concessions. You have to build consensus. But really, this is this is nothing here. Uh, progressives got every single one of their 
uh, projects funded. Uh, it takes one person, the director of OMB, to waive uh, authority to be able to spend money to advance Biden's progressive agenda. Uh, we didn't get hardly anything out of this, and least of all spending cuts. And we're setting into law record high levels of spending started during the COVID emergency. And even President Biden said a few weeks ago, COVID is over. There's no reason to be spending at levels this high and to put that into law. So uh, your Republican colleague, Congressman Ken Buck, told CNN's Jim Shuto a few hours ago uh, that Speaker McCarthy should be, quote, concerned about his leadership uh, and that there will be discussions next week about Republicans uh, offering a motion to vacate to remove him from his speakership. Would you support that move? And what do you make of it? Well, I'm not a member of the Freedom Caucus, so I can't speak for them or what their strategy might be. I'm a caucus of one, but I do believe discussion about vacating the chair is premature at this juncture um, and don't believe that it'll it'll have any legs at this moment. All right. A caucus of one. Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jake. From friends to foes, two former Trump supporters are now about to take him on. That first debate is going to be one heck of a reunion. Stay with us. The race for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination is heating up as two more candidates are set to join the contest. Sources tell CNN that former Vice President Mike Pence will kick off his campaign during an event in Iowa one week from today, while former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is set to throw his hat into the ring the day before in New Hampshire. Pence and Christie are joining what is quickly becoming a crowded field with nearly a dozen high-profile Republican candidates in the mix. CNN's Omar Jimenez is following Christie's upcoming campaign launch for us. But I want to start with CNN's Jeff Zeleny from Iowa on former Vice President Mike Pence. Jeff, how is Pence planning to challenge his former running mate, the guy at the top of the ticket, and the current prohibitive Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump, for the nomination? Jake, there is no doubt this is going to be an awkward contest with the former vice president challenging uh, the former president. But I am told uh, in conversations with uh, Mike Pence over the last several months, and as we've seen him campaign, he's going to present himself as the true conservative in this race. He talks openly about how Republicans must confront the fiscal insolvency of Social Security and other programs. That is very rarely discussed by any Republican candidate. He's going to be talking about how he believes it's time to return the Republican Party to... um, Uh, to a party of sanity, in his view, to elevate the public discourse. He's said that Republicans, he believes, are hungry for a new brand of leadership. Of course, that is the test. We will see if that is actually the case. He said that he believes Republican voters will, uh, that history will hold uh, Trump accountable for his actions on January 6th. Of course, it's an open question if Republican voters will indeed. But next Wednesday, he's scheduled to jump into this race officially, making this a pretty crowded contest, Jake. And uh, Omar, Governor Christie has said that, that he sees himself as the only serious Republican candidate willing to directly and effectively take on his former friend, Donald Trump, whom he endorsed in 2016. Why? Well, at this point, simply he said that former President Donald Trump failed not just him, but the country. And despite any initial faith he may have had. So we ended up here where multiple sources have told me that Chris Christie is expected to launch his presidential bid in New Hampshire on Tuesday. We expect this to happen in a town town hall format at St. Anselm College. But recent polling suggests he's got an uphill battle ahead of him just in the last two weeks. The CNN 
poll of Republican and Republican-leaning voters showed him polling at just 2% among those polled. And you see how much ground is actually between him and the former president who polled at 53 among that group. But then also within that same group, when we asked uh, who they would never support for the GOP presidential nomination, not where you would want to see yourself leading, and Chris Christie polled at 60% among those that responded there. So clearly a lot of work to be done to carve out a lane, but take a listen to some of what he said at a recent town hall indicating that he wanted to make clear he's not just some never Trumper who is jumping into the race, but instead someone who has had to work with him. Take a listen. Talking to somebody and hearing from someone who believed I could help make him better, wanted him to do what was best for the country, and he failed me even worse than he failed you. So I'm not going to stand around and let this happen. Now, if I decide to run, I'll be able to try to do something directly about it. And I think that gives some insight to some of the initial strategy here that he saw the former president up close and he couldn't fix him and that now there is no going around President Trump, but any path to a GOP nomination is going to have to go through him. And he feels he is the one that could do so most effectively, Jake. And Jeff, you're in Iowa. You're tracking another presidential candidate, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's barnstorming the Hawkeye state today and holding four events there. He's also responding to a number of attacks from Trump. He is Jake, and actually he's speaking behind me here right now in Pella, which is why I've lowered my voice, because this is his event, not mine. But he's speaking to a couple hundred Republicans here who are, quite frankly, curious about his uh, message in Florida, curious about his record. He said that he will challenge the former president on his own time, but he talks about warning Republicans against fighting against the culture of losing. We can't make excuses... Uh, We have to be able to get the job done. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is trying to seize the reins of the Republican Party from the hands of Donald Trump, pitching himself as a fighter who can win. This bureaucracy has imposed its will on us for far too long. It's about time we impose our will on it and that it answers to we the people. On his first full day of campaigning across Iowa as a declared presidential candidate, DeSantis made clear he would draw distinctions with the former president on his terms. I am going to counterpunch. I'm going to fight back on it. I'm going to focus my fire on Biden, and I think he should do the same. He gives Biden a free pass. Um, I'm focusing on Biden. But long before DeSantis can confront President Biden, he must first get through a Republican primary and a growing field of challengers including former Vice President Mike Pence, who is poised to enter the race next week, CNN has learned. But Trump still looms largest over the race. Tonight, he arrives here to offer something of a rebuttal to DeSantis, the latest sign the race is intensifying, with the Iowa caucuses early next year among the first tests for the strength of Trump's grip on the GOP. Simona Yentes is among the Iowa Republicans weighing their options, and at this point, she's utterly undecided. I have a tremendous amount of respect for many things President Trump did in office. So I have to keep that in mind. I also have a tremendous amount of respect for what Governor DeSantis has done in Florida. It's that deeply conservative record DeSantis is touting as he introduces himself to Iowa voters, even as he steps up his subtle contrast with Trump. At the end of the day, leadership is not about entertainment. It's not about building a brand. It's not about virtue signaling. It is about results. 
At his side was one of his closest political advisors, his wife Casey, who picked up the argument where he left off. At the end of the day, I say that it matters in the moment, and you see how a leader conducts himself when the lights are on. And Casey DeSantis has been at the governor's side at every stop along the way here today in Iowa, um, talking about their family, talking about his military record, even drawing a distinction between uh, the governor and former President Donald Trump. So she clearly will be a central part of this campaign. But Jake, as the governor uh, is still speaking here tonight, talking about what he will do on day one in office if he were to be elected. One example is, as he says, firing the FBI director. So running through a laundry list of conservative uh, policies. So this speech is certainly one that's ideologically rooted in his Florida record and his conservative uh, thinking. Of course, Donald Trump arrives here in Iowa tonight. The showdown, Jake, is on. Yeah, it's interesting. DeSantis talking about conservative priorities, not grievances, uh, which should be quite a contrast. Jeff Zeleny, Omar Jimenez, uh, thanks so much. And, And join me in Iowa this Sunday for a CNN Republican presidential town hall with former South Carolina governor and U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley. That's at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, only on CNN, live from Iowa. And then on Wednesday, Dana Bash will be in Iowa to moderate a CNN town hall with former Vice President Mike Pence. That's at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Coming up with the $6 billion settlement with the family behind the company that gave America OxyContin, what that means for addiction and the opioid crisis. That's next. In our law and justice, lead a billionaire family behind the company accused of fueling the opioid crisis in the United States. That family is largely off the hook. A federal appeals court ruling that just came down protects members of the Sackler family from current and future civil lawsuits over their role in Purdue Pharma's opioid business. CNN's Bryn Gingrass reveals now what the Sacklers had to give up in order to get that immunity and why many critics say it is not enough. Drugs like Oxycontin made one American family very rich and helped fuel the opioid crisis, killing many of those who became addicted. I lost my niece a couple years ago to an overdose. I lost a brother. That family should have to start going to funerals. That family is the Sacklers. They'll get to keep the bulk of their fortune and be shielded from current and future civil lawsuits as part of a settlement just upheld by a federal appeals court. Their company, Purdue Pharma, made billions developing opioid-based drugs, misrepresenting the risk of addiction. The Sacklers directed and approved hiring sales representatives whose job was to visit doctors and persuade them to prescribe more opiates, higher doses of opiates, and for longer periods of time. Now Purdue will pay up to $6 billion. Our focus going forward is to deliver billions of dollars of value for victim compensation, opioid crisis abatement, and overdose rescue medicines, the company said in a statement. The settlement also ends years of civil lawsuits against the company and family. The Sackler family continues to deny wrongdoing, but expresses regret for the effect on communities. They had took into no accountability what they were actually doing to people. Dozens of states and individuals sued in the wake of the company pleading guilty to federal criminal charges for how it marketed and sold OxyContin. For some victims' families, the settlement feels like the best deal they could have gotten. The alternative would have been thousands and thousands of lawsuits that could have spread, gone on for years and years. It gets the Sacklers out of the opioid business. It shuts down Purdue Pharma. It gave families the opportunity to address the Sacklers and tell them how they wrecked their lives, and it gets money to families. Don't worry, it's a 
an excellent drug. The family dynasty dramatized in TV series like Dope Sick. They say their reputation is unfair. It distresses me greatly and angers me greatly that the medication that was developed to help people and relieve severe pain has become associated with so much human suffering. In a statement, the family says they are pleased with the settlement. The long-awaited implementation of this resolution is critical to providing substantial resources for people and communities in need. And there have never been criminal charges filed against the Sackler family. But look, those who have been addicted themselves to opioids or, di- or had a family member that died from an opioid addiction, they say this family is no different than, say, a heroin dealer, Jake. And they would like to see those criminal charges filed. It's important to note that this settlement does not shield the Sacklers from that possible prosecution. Jake. All right, Brent Gingras, thanks so much. Here to discuss is journalist Beth Macy, the author of Dopesick. Dealers, doctors, and the drug company that addicted America. Uh, Beth, good to see you again. Thanks for joining us. So Purdue Pharma first introduced the opioid drug OxyContin in the 1990s. It promoted it aggressively as non-addictive. A couple of decades, one massive opioid epidemic later, one that we're still going through. We know that's not true. Between 1999 and 2020, more than 564,000 people in this country died from an overdose, overdose involving any opioid, obviously, that's not just the prescription drugs manufactured by Purdue. And it also includes uh, illicit opioids such as heroin. Um, what is your reaction as one of the world authorities of this family and the crisis um, to the settlement? Well, I was really disappointed. Um, first of all, when white collar criminals don't go to jail, the behavior continues. And to me and to a lot of the activists, that I profiled in uh, my follow-up book to Dope Sick, Raising Lazarus. Um, this is just another example of billionaire justice. They um, they got the family gets civil immunity in exchange for giving up the company and six billion dollars of their wealth, which is roughly just half of what they made. They get eighteen years to pay it off, which means that the money that they they have now can continue to to build on itself. And, you know, they they paid almost a billion dollars on legal fees throughout the case. Um, So, you know, when you have a family uh, that ran a company, that micromanaged a company that basically was the taproot of this crisis. And at the end of this four years of litigation, they still retain much of their wealth. I mean, wealth is power in this country. Um, What's the legal deterrent, you know? So, yeah, I think they're worth about $11 billion all told. And so they have to give $6 billion. The company has declared bankruptcy. Um, so the $6 billion, it, it goes to states. It goes to individual claimants. It goes to opioid crisis prevention. Will that solve anything? Will it uh, help alleviate the crisis? Uh, and is it enough? Well, it's not enough. Will it help? Of course, it will help. Um you know, a lot of the money from the distributor uh, settlement that came started coming down last year, that's coming to communities. But we've always already had some really good reporting showing that uh, it isn't being spent necessarily in ways that will help those who have been most affected. We have some communities buying cop cars and money going out to the same old war on drugs mentalities instead of harm reduction and medication assisted treatment. So, of course, we need more money, but, you, you know, and it, it's good for this, the 700 
and fifty uh, million that are that is going to to the families. That that's great, but the average um, amount of the award is not even going to reimburse somebody for a funeral they had. And I just think it's not enough. Um, when you look and see all that they had, I've been doing some reporting in my hometown in rural Ohio, and I was just floored by how like foster care has tripled. The graduation rate has gone down. And when you dig in just beneath the surface of the growing homeless pop- population, it's the opioid crisis right there under underneath just a host of other social problems. Why have there not ever been any criminal charges Filed. You've covered uh, prosecutors looking into this. W- what do they tell you? Well, they say they're still investigating. And what the activists said when they marched in front of the Department of Justice, gosh, it's been almost two years ago now, the DOJ needs to do its J-O-B. We know they've the, the company has pleaded twice, uh, uh, guilty twice to misbranding. Right now, we know the DOJ in New Jersey is sitting on the names of Purdue salespeople who bribe doctors as well as the names of those doctors, the names of Purdue marketing executives who pay kickbacks to electronic medical records, companies that manipulated doctors into prescribing OxyContin, um, yet the government has not acted on this information. And again, I ask, like, where's the legal deterrent? Without some teeth in this, what's to keep another millionaire family that wants to become billionaires um, for, from creating another faulty product and finding an escape hatch in the bankruptcy court. Beth Macy, always great to have you on. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jake. A look at how a black child from rural Georgia rose to become a conservative icon. A hit podcast is taking a look at Clarence Thomas's rise to the Supreme Court. The host of Slate's Slow Burn joins us next. In our politics lead, he's been skewered by critics in the Democratic Party over his lack of transparency on his financial disclosure reports. And now, a new season of the great podcast, Slow Burn from Slate, tells the story of how Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas became the conservative icon he is today. Joining us now, Joel Anderson, host of Slow Burn, Becoming Justice Thomas. Joel, huge fan. I love the uh, Biggie Tupac one you did, the L.A. Riots one you did. Really looking forward to this. In the first episode, which dropped today, you traveled to Savannah, Georgia, and you talked with Justice Thomas's 94-year-old mom. You hear MSNBC, of all channels, on the TV as you walk into this house where Justice Thomas had spent part of his childhood. And now this conversation had happened just a few weeks before ProPublica reported uh, detailing how that very house you were in is actually owned by conservative megadonor Harlan Crow the same billionaire who Justice Thomas reportedly accepted lavish gifts and trips from. What did you learn from talking to Justice's, Justice Thomas's mother? Um, well, I mean, I think there's a couple things. One, uh, it kind of taught me about the economics of the family because you, as you pull up on the street uh, and you approach the house, you're expecting, I mean, this is Supreme Court justice. You know, normally the people that ascend that far up you know, they're from affluent families already. And it's just a very regular one-story home with three bedrooms um, and on a fairly regular street in, in Savannah. So um, that was one thing. But the other thing is that, you know, Clarence Thomas has talked a lot about his grandfather. In fact, his autobiography is named My Grandfather's Son. Um, but his mother was really quick to point out that his grandmother, uh, Christine, 
played just as much of a role uh, in his life and, you know, the nurturing that he received from age six on. Um, and, you know, I, there, a lot of people may have theories as to why, you know, Justice Thomas doesn't talk about his grandmother in quite the way that he talks about his grandfather. But uh, either way, uh, the woman's work was has been, you know, really overlooked in, in his life story. The first episode also touches on Justice Thomas uh, considering the priesthood, uh, being radicalized by Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, uh, even embracing to a degree with Malcolm X's ideology. What a what a long, strange trip from that to what he is today. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think the thing is, is that, you know, a lot of people he grew up, as we mentioned, under his grandfather's roof. His grandfather was a converted Catholic, wanted him to be a priest. Uh, and was very much a taskmaster, just kept him working, you know, kind of doing his own thing. And once, you know, Clarence tries the seminary in high school and in college for a couple of years, uh, you you mentioned the Martin Luther King assassination. Uh, It was when he was at the seminary during the Martin Luther King assassination that one of his classmates implied that basically it was a good thing that Martin Luther King got killed. So he drops out of the seminary and goes off to college. And when you talk about, you know, the radical piece of it, a lot of it is Clarence trying to find himself. Um, You know, this is the first time that he's sort of on his own, gets to make these decisions about who he wants to be and how he wants to present himself to the world. And in 1968, weren't many people cooler than like Black Panthers and like revolutionaries and radicals. And so it's kind of fitting. And it makes a lot of sense why somebody might gravitate toward that because at least the look of it is like sort of arresting and it makes you stand out. One of the things I love uh, about Slate's podcasts, uh, 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 especially Slow Burn, is, is the nuance and the depth and the humanity um, that, you, that you find in stories that we know, that we think we know, or that we know because we know the caricatures of the person. I'm thinking about the Linda Tripp episode from uh, season two, I guess, when they go into the Clinton uh, uh, impeachment. Was there anything that surprised you in your reporting here? Um, you know, I think the what, what's sort of interesting is that, you know, there's a narrative in that affirmative action has not played a big role in Clarence Thomas's life. And he'll say that over and over again. He's very adamant about it. And you kind of forget, you know, over the years, you know, you're just like, well, he is a Supreme Court justice. Obviously, he went to these very prestigious academic institutions. Um, you kind of forget you kind of forget that that's going to be a piece of it. But at every stage of his career, academic and professional, affirmative action played a really pivotal role. And so the idea that in a few months or within a month, he may be ruling to end affirmative action in this country the way it exists currently today is really ironic because that's a guy that benefited a lot from race-based preferences. Fascinating. I can't wait to listen. Joel Anderson, huge fan of of yours and uh, of Slate's Slow Burn in general. Thank you so much. Congratulations. Slow Burn Becoming Justice Thomas is out now. available wherever you listen to podcasts. CNN's Alex Marquardt is in for Wolf Blitzer this week. Uh, Next in the Situation Room, Alex, in just a few hours, we're going to see the big vote on the debt limit deal. Who are you going to talk to? Yes, we will, Jake. We will be speaking with one of the Democrats most upset with where this debt ceiling deal ended up. That's Congresswoman Jayapal, the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, who said today that she will be a firm no vote. She has said uh, that she is most disappointed with the work, work, work requirements aspect of this, telling you, Jake, on Sunday that changing them are, is absolutely terrible policy. So we'll be speaking with her about where she stands now and what this means for progressives going forward in just a few minutes time. All right, Alex Marquardt, we'll see you in just a few minutes. Still ahead on the lead. It looks like a stunt in a movie, but this was a real car crash. And we'll tell you what happened. 
A terrifying moment from South Georgia. A car bolted up a tow trunk's ramp and flew more than 100 feet in the air before crashing. A deputy's body camera captured it last week. According to Georgia State Patrol, the driver was a 21-year-old woman from Tallahassee. She survived but suffered serious injuries. According to local reports, she was distracted and did not see crews on the highway's shoulder. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Blue Sky if you have an invite. I'm back on the TikTok, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead. Whence you get your podcasts, all two hours just sitting there like a delicious lemon meringue pie. Our coverage continues now with Alex Marquardt in for Wolf Blitzer, right next door in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.